I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. So, sorry it's been a little bit of a hiatus. We mm. had a big hiatus over mm. the holidays. Mm. Just had a couple of weeks off. Um, a couple of reasons. The main one of which was I, I lost my voice for about a week. You did. I had you acute did. pharyngitis. So, it, it was like sore throat 2.0. My throat has never been that sore. Like mm. I couldn't talk for a couple of days just mm. because it was so sore. And then my voice went entirely. Yeah. So, you may you may hear that I've still got a little bit of a residual cough. I'm not contagious. Yeah. I know you're yep. a bit of a germphobe. Yeah. Yeah, like how I turned that around. Yep. I'm, I'm not with it, but um, yeah. So we just I just couldn't talk for a while. So we're back, wow. and so the shows are doing a. Did you? Uh, were you a song by Depeche Mode? What was that? Did you enjoy the silence? <laughs> nice, nice Depeche Mode call out. Um, no, I was in agonising pain during the silence. Oh. Actually, yeah, it was oh. it was crazy. Like I, I just it just started off as a normal sore throat. Mm. No cold came. It just it was just agonising pain for a wow. couple of days. So I had to. Yeah, have all this oh. medication, but it's all fine now. I can You're in podcast I can, purgatory. Exactly. So I can I can talk now. Um, the cough is stuck around though, so oh. it was obviously some kind of yeah, yeah serious bug. Anyway, let's start with our. So the shows this week are a couple of weeks old, but they're still playing, still current. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're starting with they're still out there. They're still they're still <laughs> out there, like the truth. Um, so we're starting with Poker Face. That's right. So this is a series from Ryan Johnson. Mm. It's about. Wait, I thought we were watching the Ro- the Russell Crowe movie. Well, that that wouldn't make sense because it's a television podcast. That was that was nice kind of. Initially, I was going to make a joke about the Czech nineteen sixties TV series instead. Ah, okay. It, it doesn't exist. Ah. It doesn't exist. Didn't, doesn't that sound like something that might exist? The Czech nineteen sixties TV series. Well, Lady Gaga song. Ah, yeah. Anyway, it's not as good. Not as good. Um, but yes, yeah, so this this is a series from Ryan Johnson. Um, stars Natasha Leone as Charlie Kale. Mm. Um, and the basic premise of it is is that Charlie Kale has an um, unwavering ability to read people's faces. She can tell right off if someone's lying or not, and she's 100% accurate. It's a procedural series, and it's an episodic series um, based heavily on Columbo, yeah. in the sense that each episode begins with, it's a kind of a how done it or why done it or how catch him. Mm. So it starts with a crime being committed, and then Charlie comes on the scene. But... The way in which it's going to unfold is not clear at all from the beginning of the pilot. It's only at the end of the pilot that you realise how that serial momentum is going to come into existence. So the pilot takes place in Vegas. Mm. Um, She works at a casino and it turns out that she knew the former owner of the casino. The the, the former owner's son Mm. is now managing the casino and the former owner's son, who's played by Adrian Brody, basically is involved in a murder. That's all we need to say. And he covers it up. That's, that's weird. And meanwhile, she's working at the casino and we get a little bit of her backstory in the episode um, that she had this incredible ability to read faces, that it got into trouble, that it made her a threat in Vegas in some ways. And basically, she almost came to blows with the casino patriarch, but he did her a favour, kept her on staff. And now Adrian Brody, the next generation, is coming you know, coming to the managerial role. And the way in which it's structured is you kind of see the murder first and then she comes onto the scene. And this is the way in which all the subsequent episodes tend to be structured as well. A murder happens and then you realise, you, you kind of jump back about a day or you jump back a short time and it's revealed that uh, the Natasha Leone character, Charlie, has been a part of the scene or a part of the story. We just haven't seen her yeah. bit yet. And so that's the very ingenuity Columbia. of this structure here. The, very, yes. The story structure, the framing device she's absent from, even though... According to the strict chronological time frame, yeah. she's actually already part of it. So we, her strategic elision is, I guess, the, the, um, I guess, the creative uh, fruit yeah. of this. And we just happen not to see it. Yeah. And the way in which it sets up the premise is basically she uncovers the crime. It's a major threat to the casino, and she has to go on the lamb. So in an extraordinary turn, the rest of the series plays out as a kind of incredible fusion of procedural and road movie, mm. where she basically is fleeing from these casino corporate you know bigwigs and each episode is a different place along the road where yeah. she encounters a different crime so the rest of the ro- the series takes place in kind of roadside america and goes through a series of incredible regional textures and we'll come onto that in a moment because the way in which it unfolds i think is is incredible too but that's the setup here it takes place in vegas she's got this ability to read faces it helps her solve a crime here the crime means she has to go on the run a series is born and look i felt a bit a bit trepidatious coming into this just because i don't think i'm as much a fan of the knives out and glass glass onion like the knives out franchise as most people like really? it's oh. I'm not a huge fan like i mean i think it's it's really clever and it's enjoyable the knives out for knives out i have yeah I, I mean look i think it's it's clever and it's enjoyable but there's something about it that is a bit flat for me. Like it's it's 
it's so much about its own cleverness and so much about its own ingenuity that sometimes I think that actually gets in the way of genuine suspense for me or even genuine intrigue. So it's like oh. it's like I feel like it's a bit like farce those series. Like it's it's closer to farce for me than to a traditional suspense thriller. And I think they're a tiny bit smug as well. This series, in a way, was kind of what I wanted Knives Out and Glass Onion to be. Like I think just by kind of transplanting it to to television and transplanting it to a procedural ongoing narrative, just the outer edge of that smugness has kind of burned away. Mm. And what you have is just the genuine ingenuity without all the kind of farcical self-referentiality, mm. I guess. So I thought, I mean, I thought this was... Maybe Natasha Leone's character is a better vehicle for this, for you at least, compared to the Daniel Craig character. I don't think it's just... I mean, I think the Daniel Craig character is awful. Like, I, think, <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's the low point of the franchise. But no, there's lots of other people in it that I like. I thought Edward Norton was great. Like, I thought um, Janelle Monet was great. So I don't think it's just about the, the lead actor. I think it's just that there's something inherently... <coughs> maybe more there's that cough inherently more modest about a television procedural than a high concept big budget detective film so I, I didn't by any means dislike Knives Out and Glass Onion but I thought they were both a bit overrated and I just I just I didn't particularly care for them like they weren't massively my kind of thing whereas mm-hmm. this I think has the same intelligence but in a, in a vein that I like more and you know in a kind of very different reaction from how I felt about those two films I thought this was one like the best TV pilots I've seen, like in years. Like I thought, yeah. everything about it was extraordinary. Yeah. It's a movie-length pilot. It, yep. it could, it could operate as, could a, a, movie. as, a, as a movie. Yep. If it was uh, expanded mm. by twenty minutes, it would, mm. it would be, I think, a really effective movie. Mm. Um, it's quite cinematic. The Vegas setting is very, uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. Impressive. There, like some big caliber actors here: Adrian Brody, yep. Benjamin Bratt. Mm. Um, Who I, I couldn't t- play through, but then I was like, Miss Congeniality. Yeah, <laughs> Sandra Bullock's handler, Miss Congeniality. It took me a while to kind of figure out where he of was course. from. So the supporting characters are great. Yep. There's a great sense of space here. Well, I mean, that that's particularly impressive. This reminded me a lot of one from the heart, the Francis Ford Coppola film. So oh. the whole thing feels like it's taking place on a like hype. It feels like it's shot in Vegas, but it also feels like it's taking place in a kind of hyper-real set of Vegas. Mm. And it's interesting, like so many TV series and films about Vegas are about trying to map Vegas, right? Mm. Trying to find a way to visualise, spatialise Vegas. And in a way, the Natasha Leone character can do that because she can tell who's lying or not. Mm. So being able to tell whether someone's lying or not gives you a a unique ability to navigate Vegas. Mm. And the Adrian Brody soon figures out that's, that can be a real power in the casino and actually takes her up to the kind of the eerie, the casino control centre, which gives that panoramic view of the entire gaming floor and kind of asks her to, to map for him who's lying, who's not lying and give him that insight. So I think there's something about Vegas that feels really uncannily present, seen mm. through her eyes. And I think this is one of the more interesting features of this show. Mm. Um, obviously, the fact she, can, she can't tell who's lying, who's not, mm. could take away the, the suspense of the series. I agree. But instead... They almost approach from the premise that characters do know that she can tell mm. uh, with absolute rock-solid certainty mm. who's lying, who's not, and then move based on that assumption. So here, clearly, Adrian Brody actually does know mm. that she has a, you know this rock-solid ability, so he's very evasive. The way mm. he and Benjamin Bratt respond to questions is very artful. Absolutely. So there's a, there's a sort of parry and thrust in the, in the dialogue which is very interesting and very ingenious. So I agree. This is the dance of the show, right? So exactly, because it's it's absolutely non-negotiable that she can tell if someone's lying or not, you get all the ingenuity comes around her trying to either like uh, elicit a lie from somebody or know where to look for a lie. So, mm. so much of this episode is them trying to dance around, <coughs> dance around whether, you know, not telling her an outright untruth. And in subsequent episodes, you know, other things come into play. So, for example, a lie that she... Re- like a casual lie that in retrospect turns out to have a significance. Mm. So there's an episode later on where someone just tells a completely casual lie, not knowing that she'll have any involvement with the case. And then afterwards, she wonders why they lied. There's no reason for them to lie, and that prompts it. Yeah. And also, this something I found as the series goes on too is this, it really... A lot of it takes place at the spectrum between an outright lie a lie by omission and just a kind of evasion. Yeah. And just the way in which she navigates that spectrum, yeah, between lie and evasion or between an overt lie and a lie by omission, all that stuff is really effective and that, mm. that is part of the ingenuity. I also just think, like, the kind of visual style and the approach to space are incredible as well. Mm. So this, it's got that same really deliberate mathematical, like, geometrical style of Knives Out and Glass Onion. It, it reminded me of Hitchcock. Like, you know, the way in which Hitchcock said that Whenever he, 
came up with the idea for a film. He planned every shot in advance so that when he was making the film, he was just putting his plan into execution. Like, this feels like that. Like, every space mm. is kind of reduced to sight lines, ciphers, codes, puzzles. Like, every space is this kind of, like, system that's waiting to be mapped out by the camera. Mm. So, for example, there's a scene where they're trying to catch someone in a lie here and they consider setting up cameras in a room in a poker game to try and capture him from every conceivable angle Mm. and every space in the show is like that and it's almost like there's a sense in which i don't know quite how to put it like in vegas it's like there's two spaces side by side a real space and a kind of virtual space and the series is always trying to map out and overlap the two so in the next episode the second episode there's a whole thing at a service station which is also about configuring security cameras Mm. the next episode there's a whole thing at a roadside barbecue which is about a radio broadcast it's always about like trying to Mm. capture real and imaginary space Mm. and the way they overlap and the the places they come together like it's so it's so almost yeah yeah, geometric in the way it's set out it it deals with mystery in the era of surveillance yes absolutely very effectively yes and the certain constraints that that places on the genre Mm. here are actually opportunities for Mm. you know extreme ingenuity I think, I think it's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, like it's like there's an assumption that every single space is simultaneously a surveillance space. Mm. So it's like the way it kind of captures that. It's Yeah, I, I think it's exactly what it is. Yeah, and I think Natasha Lyonne is, is a great vehicle for this yes. as well because she's the, you know, she's, she's not even a sleuth here. She's mm. not an amateur sleuth. She's certainly not a professional sleuth. Her sleuthing is just, is just inadvertent. She's often, you know, a put-upon service worker mm. who's trying to even not even deliberately trying to achieve justice just just has a sense of, of righteousness and, and often the victims tend to be people that she's befriended and in she, the course and she, of the journey and she's almost like a surveillance machine herself that so just mm. registers stuff and tries to figure out the incongruities mm. she has a wonderful uh you know her gravelly her sort of raspy voice also just harkens back to that that golden age of you know those really sassy Columbo. sort of or even film noir yep. kind of heroines you know yep. well i was going to say like a show like Columbo or like like noir as well this genre it's all about hubris and dis- disquisition yeah like if there's a lot of exposition in the show like there's a lot of long talking scenes but i think it really works partly because of her like her voice is so kind of whiskey soaked and so mm. gravelly and so awry and her face works really well too just talking about her appearance her face works so well for the whole lie detector premise just because she's always got a slightly quizzical skeptical awry look yeah so she's like peter falk in that like she has just listening to her talk is a pleasure and mm. listening to her expound is a pleasure that really works um yeah so i agree there is that kind of noirish it's, it's kind of quite rightly in a noirish way mm. Mm. And, and it has that formalism that um it has that formalism that that knives out has and that delight in you know the formal ingenuity of the puzzle of the system of the code of the whole space itself but yeah just without that edge of edge of self self-congratulation yeah. like it just it's and I think it, like it's extraordinarily beautiful. Have you you've seen, have you seen the second episode? I've yeah, like, I've seen. Is that almost better than the first? Five, like the second episode, five, I think the is incredible. Is, is fantastic. Yeah, I, have that, I think yeah. it's a bit of a drop off after Ryan Johnson starts stops directing. Yeah, but those two. So the second episode is takes place in just you know a, a service station and you know a, a kind of you know roadside stop pit stop, a service station, a couple of buildings. It never leaves that location, and the no. whole thing is about again the kind of same sense of mapping. So. It, a large part of it involves someone sitting on the top of the station looking at a comet their site like the whole thing is about orchestrating yeah i like that surveillance culture because it's all about taking sight lines taking vistas and reducing them to like data information codes patterns stuff that can be tabulated mapped you know geometrically configured it's 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 so beautiful and exhilarating to watch Mm, and mm. i i yeah, I love the... Ro- I mean, at the end of it, I actually said, whoa, like when I realised it was going to be her on the road going from place to place and each one was going to be a different regional, you know, I was, what a great premise. Mm, mm. And it, look, as the show goes on, it is formulaic. Mm. Uh, the formula is a very good one. And, it, we- and it's formalist. Mm. So formulaic works nicely, I mm, think. Mm. And I guess that's, that's what the ambition of the show is, mm. is to return to that, you know, episodic model of television mm. that worked so successfully for, you know the first 50 years of the medium. I think we'll talk about this bit when we get to Alaska Daily, but I think there is a hankering for a more modest kind of television and mm. a more modest procedural kind of television. Mm. I also think that premise of her like emerging about a third of the way through 
you know, and us kind of jumping back and seeing how she fits into the into the narrative. That <coughs> excuse me, that could be really contrived, but for a road narrative, it works really well. Mm. So we'll mm. start with some story in the road, and then we jump back, and it's like, oh, how here's how she came into it, like a couple of hours ago yeah. or a couple of days ago. So because she's always moving, the way in which she kind of jumps into the stories, I think, is really mm. effective. Mm. And and that, no matter how many times you see it, just that radical reconfiguration it's great. of space and time that occurs when yep. suddenly you realise someone was there all along, which I think the Knives Out series does very well, yes. is still surprising and delightful. Well, that, that in itself is a kind of... That's a kind of formalist thing yeah. in itself, isn't it? So it's, like, it's almost like it starts with this kind of 20-minute short film and then you get the whole thing which reconfigures that film and gives you a completely different way of looking at it as well. And I think there's there are a lot of um, readings of this series that it's not a whodunit. Mm. Um, it is still largely a whodunit. Mm. It's just the audience knows more than she does. Yep, exactly. So we're, we're, we've, we've got all that and we're just seeing the, the breadcrumbs being, mm. being strewn by mm. her uh, lie detecting. So we're, we're waiting for her to catch up. Yes. Um, but she's you know, facing very formidable yep. adversaries because the first 20 minutes we see all the different elaborate steps the criminal's gone to mm. cover their tracks. I was going to say to the moment when she starts to cat cotton on, like, you know, how you know, being a Hitchcock, often in a, in a Hitchcock film, there'll be like an object that suddenly changes someone's perception. So like mm. the jewellery and vertigo, the glass of milk and suspicion. Here, the object is often the lie. Mm. So someone will lie in an unexpected way or someone will be evasive which, and she just, huh. And everything reconfigures around mm. it. So, mm. yeah, I feel like as it goes on <coughs> more and more, I found myself thinking, like, what exactly is a lie? Mm. And when are you telling a lie? Because although she's 100% accurate with lies, what constitutes a lie sometimes becomes murkier exactly. and murkier. What, what triggers her powers What of triggers it? Because once mm. they're triggered, they're accurate. Yes. But it just takes... And, yeah, and just when someone lies for no reason, for no good reason, mm. then, huh, like, why are you doing... Because all of us in our day-to-day lives lie for no good reason Absolutely. all the time. You know, how are you feeling? Oh, good. You know, like, what, what did you do on the weekend? Not much. Mm. You know, so it just, it just captures that so effectively. So I'm curious. I've only watched up to the episode of the nursing home. Have you worked beyond, watched beyond? I'm a couple of episodes. Likewise. Okay. Likewise. I think that's about episode four. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there is a bit of a drop-off after episode one and two. I just, and it's great that they're sharing around the directorial duties, but just Johnson's sense of space mm. and his sense of, it's, they are... I mean, a part of me wishes he was directing the whole thing. Yeah. Those, I reckon the second episode could almost be better than the first. Yeah. It is so incredible. One and two are, are great. And great, like Hong Chow was so great in that episode yes. as a truck driver. Yes. Like it's, yeah, it's fantastic. So look, I'm, I'm a really hard in, I'm really enjoying the recent episode, but the first two episodes, I was like, this is a point of viewing television. I'm, I'm glad I can enjoy it. Because like I said, with Knives Out and Glass Onion, I liked it, but I wasn't part of the, the massive fandom. I'm really, I'm really glad that I found a way into that style because I really love this. Yeah. I'm a hard yeah. in. Yeah. Look, fantastic show. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's, you know, very ingenious, got great pedigree. Yeah. I uh, love all the cast and um, yeah, I'm, I'm already well, well past 50% of the way through this series. So, I mean... So as a sidebar, I just realised, remember at the beginning of Glass Onion, there's that bit when he's having, doing the Among Us Zoom call with Stephen Sondheim, Angela Lansbury and Kareem... Um, Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, and Natasha Leone. That must have been when... Brian Johnson was filming it with Natasha. That's the Natasha Leone connection, yeah. So, because all the others felt kind of like comically incongruous, but I was like, why is she there? Yeah. yeah. So, look, yeah, it's great. I'm a hard in. Okay, on to our next series. And it is shrinking. Mm. It comes from Apple TV Plus, and it's an American comedy drama created by Brett Goldstein, mm-hmm. who is the creator of Ted Lasso, uh, Bill Lawrence, who has quite a comic pedigree, including mm-hmm. working on Spin City, and Jason Siegel, the very famous okay. member of the. Yep of the, uh, the Apatow crowd. Mm. Uh, so the premise is we have a therapist played by Jason Siegel, who also obviously writes it. Uh, he's dealing with... Oh, did he write it, Jason Siegel? He co-wrote, oh, okay. co-wrote it with the other uh, comic writers. So he's dealing with tremendous trauma and grief as a result of the loss of his wife uh, a year before. And we begin in you know one did, year... Did she leave him or did she pass away? She passed away. Okay, I... Yeah, she passed away. So she passed away 12 I think, months I before. I think I'd, I'd lost interest by the time we got the backstory. But okay, good, just to clarify. He's dealing with this uh, miasma of grief. Mm. And as a result, he's sort of sleepwalking through life. Mm. Uh, he also is raising uh, a young daughter mm. who uh, is, is a teenager. And mm-hmm. I was obviously, you know, um, estranged from him. They still live in the same house, but mm. she's almost closer to his, mm. his neighbours who are raising her as a kind of surrogate daughter. Um, and... 
he's also sleepwalking through his job as well. And mm. now, irony of ironies, he's a depressed therapist. Ah. So how does he how does he manage this? Mm. Um, the answer do, is do tell, <laughs> do tell. The answer is he decides to engage in stark and unadorned honesty. So he tells him like it is. He tells, tells it, it like it is. He tells it like it is. Gets so real with the therapy. He gets real with his patients. So he tells uh, a patient, a female patient, who's constantly complaining to him about her relationship problems, you just got to leave this bloke. Otherwise, I'm not going to be your therapist anymore. Mm. So she, he hands down an ultimatum to her. Uh, he he engages in in some some tough love mm. with another patient who has, who's, been, who's been assigned to him on the basis of uh, anger management. Yep. And he recommends that this patient enroll in an MMA fighting course. Yep. And uh, various hijinks ensue. Mm. So this is, I guess, consistent with the, the Ted Lasso bottle of, uh, of comedy. where I, we have I, a... I, got, I got some really bad Ted Lasso vibes <laughs> during the final football scene. I was like, oh, no. It was like, it was, oh, it was, yeah. It was a bad flashback. <laughs> yeah, so, so we have... Um, a white middle-aged male in in crisis, mm. and the way he deals with a bit like afterlife as well. Yeah, the yep. way he deals with crisis is with radical acts of uh, compassion, self-compassion, yep. yeah, and especially and especially self-compassion. <laughs> so, so like Ted Lasso's model of uh, comedy through you know radical radical kindness, we have a we have another another model, and and mm. I guess what is also notable about about this is Harrison Ford. Um, his involvement as a as a fellow therapist and a supporting actor, technically. And interestingly, this is actually a deviation from Harrison Ford's alleged promise that he would only work once a year. Um, he's actually he's taking TV roles left, right, and center. Mm. So he's also in 1923, mm. um, and will soon be gracing our our, our film uh, our large big screens again with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So mm. all of a sudden, from being you know someone we barely saw at all. Mm. You know, Someone who sort of seemed to be receding into semi-retirement. Harrison Ford's everywhere. It's a Harrisonant. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, there are also some other um, therapists who occupy, including uh, Jessica Williams. She's a pre- she has a pretty thankless role. <laughs> who's probably most famous for her role in, in this uh, episode? <laughs> yeah, in um, in um, the uh, oh, I'm just blanking. Mm. Shrinking. <laughs> not, not shrinking. She she was one of the correspondents in the Daily Show, of okay. course. So uh, this, I think, has a similar comic register to, to Ted Lasso. It's very genial. Yeah. Uh, the characters well, strive yeah. very hard for likability. Mm. And like Ted Lasso, it seems to have found an audience mm. that is gradually accumulating uh, based on this, on this very gentle style of you know, crowd-pleasing, inoffensive, innocuous. Yeah. I feel like you're trying to provoke of, me into a rant here. I know what's happening. Type of comedy. Um, Look, I, I, I'm going to cut in here. Um, <laughs> look, I see the comparison to Ted Lasso, but I mean, at least Ted Lasso is consistently upbeat, right? Like, I thought this was just drenched in such kind of jowly, hangdog, <laughs> sad boy self-pity. I mean, I thought this was like Dan in real life as slow television. <laughs> Or like the, the front cover of Dan in real life, <laughs> slow television. You know what he's lying on the pancakes? Yeah, on the pancakes. Because one wouldn't normally do that. Um, I just, look, let me... Did let, you not somewhat enjoy Dan in real life, though? Yeah, well, yeah. And so, can Jason Segel not, not really nail the hangdog? Yeah, I guess... I mean, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, of course, is a, is a comic classic. Well, I was going to say, like, I mean, I think he's done it. Like, this is like Forgetting Sarah Marshall 20 years on. Look, I just, I just found... Look, so I found it... I found it distasteful. So, I mean, the premise is why... Is, the premise... Yeah, I did. I was offended by it. <laughs> the premise his wife has died, right? Like, that felt like such a bad faith premise. Like, it's just like there's a generic trauma here to make his midlife crisis just seem more profound, yeah. right? Like, it just felt totally token, the narrative. It's, 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 it's like... It's a bit like, you know, the wife dying in Afterlife with Ricky Gervais, right? It's just there to make his hang-ups seem more profound. And, like, seriously, that like... The hang, it's like if this guy stubs his toe, it's an existential crisis. <laughs> you know, like the tap is tight. It's like it's a trauma. Yeah. You know, he a car cuts him off. It's a trauma. Like it was just, it was just drenched in it's so much. It's a bit much, of a lazy play for sympathy. Oh, it's just drenched in so much self-pity, just yeah. kind of out of nowhere. And the self-pity feels so, like the wife, you know, the wife dying narrative feels so tokenistic and so 
much like a placeholder that you just kind of forget it's there mm. and it just feels like a guy it's like it's just like midlife crisis jail it's like sad boy vibes mm. just and just no just unregulated self-pity so i just <laughs> i just i just kind of felt like at least ted lasso was upbeat but this was just like oh like it's just like just just like watching Jason Siegel cry face because he mm. stubbed his toe. I also thought Harrison Ford was like completely absent. Like, is Harrison <laughs> Ford even in this? Like, he seems at least in this pilot, he, he phoned it in a little bit. I mean, literally, there's a scene with him on, on the phone. phone. And you know, you can kind of see why they would think Harrison Ford would work in this because you've got to have a counterpoint yeah. to all that like self-regard. And Harrison Ford is good at you know cutting through that. Like, he's got a kind of brusqueness. And a kind of awryness that you could see being a really good counterpoint to Jason Siegel here. But yeah. when he's there, he feels absent. He feels like he's in a different show and he's hardly there at all anyway. <laughs> I just thought this was, I just thought this was like just <laughs> drowning in self regard. I found it really hard to finish this. <laughs> really? And it's only like 20 minutes or 25 <laughs> minutes. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm such a hard out on this. I know I, I know since since Fleischman is in trouble. Since Fleischman, I never know what you're going to like. I never know if I'm going to get a shock that you like something. But this one, I'm, I'm just going to put it out there and just yeah, say like, and the limb. Just say I thought this was. I also just got like, oh, I just got. It was almost like being a therapist became another burden to it. It's like, mate, didn't therapy pay for your house? You know, like he's taking on these huge paychecks. I just thought the. I don't know, I thought the whole like dance like nobody's watching, say whatever you want stuff in therapy was just really cringe. Mm. I also thought that the advice he was giving his clients that was supposedly radical was just normal advice maybe it should have been given them all along. Yeah. So there's a guy with anger management issues. To me, saying to someone with anger management, maybe you should take up a martial arts or a combat sport as a bit of a healthy outlet, that doesn't seem like yeah. radical advice. It was actually pretty commonsensical, yeah, a lot was, of the advice. So I guess the, the register was, yeah. was radical. It's just like he'd, it was like he'd just elevated to a basic level of professionalism yeah. and even his even his kind of extroverted side mm. you felt like any minute it was going to collapse into more <laughs> self-pity so it was crenellated i guess you could call I, it, was dista- <laughs> it was distasteful i guess you could call uh, ted lasso and it's and it's ilk uh it's progeny for yeah. you it's misshapen progeny <laughs> you could describe it as a kind of genre which we might describe as kind of life-affirming Dramedy? Well, well, kind of. <laughs> In inverted commas, life affirming. I'm going to call it sad. Dramedy. I'm going to call it sad boy self regard. <laughs> I reckon Ted Lasso and Shrinking share the same pathology, but Ted Lasso's like the manic phase. This is like the depressive phase. <laughs> yeah. like, did you did you see the Shrink Next Door too with Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd? I did not. That this was like that. In about, oh, okay. That was better because okay. I think they both have a residual charisma that I don't think Jason Segel has. But it's funny, like I started watching Forgetting Sarah Marshall again a while back yeah. and like all the side characters are great. Jonah Hill's great. You know, like, all the side bits are great, but just Jason Segel is oh, like... Oh, no, I will not, have, I will not uh, hear a bad word about that. That is, that is uh, where I draw the line. That uh, is... No, 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 no. The puppet show... Uh, punch... No. Punch this one out all you want, but no. do not touch Look, Forgetting Sarah forgetting Marshall. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Do not dare go there, the my The side friends. characters. <laughs> I, the I side characters. You to a duel. <laughs> the side characters, fine, but just Jason Siegel, I was like, oh, no, yuck. No, so I just, I just, I can't, I can't do it. And this was like. But his his schlubby, his schlubby uh, breakdown was, and, and just, just wallowing. So it was so, it was so hilarious. Yeah, it's funny and at times. also kind of relatable. I mean, yeah, everyone's sure, been there sure. at some point. It's, it's, he, I, this is dressed up in, in a, it's kind of they attempt to justify yeah. his immense self pity here, which mm. is which is a, I think a mistake. Yeah, because you know just have have the courage to create an unlikable character, or I at agree. least a character that's. <laughs> I agree. Look, obviously, Sphinx Hair Marshall is different in that respect, but there's just something about. Look, maybe I did go back and rewatch it after watching this. Yeah. So maybe this yeah. is just complete. I also thought like. For a comedy or a dramedy about therapy, it wasn't that ingenious. Like you could, like therapy is so ripe for drama mm. and for comedy, mm. and it's just it's such an interesting thing. So you look at something like In Treatment or The Sopranos or or like Web Therapy. Have you seen that the Lisa Kudrow comedy I series? Not, no. It's great. So it's like it's like a, it started off as an internet series where Lisa Kudrow is like this very uptight upper middle class woman who play, who kind of does therapy sessions as a kind of side gig to her husband. It's really funny. So therapy is such a great vehicle for comedy but i actually thought the therapy stuff here for all the title and the premise wasn't that much a part of it like he mm. he, he he just might as might as easily have been giving you know speaking truth to people on the street or on the bus like mm. the therapy stuff felt a bit after the fact and again mm. hence the fact that harrison ford wasn't in it that much like that therapy relationship and maybe that comes into it more but yeah i thought for a comedy about therapy 
didn't do much with therapy. Yeah. Wasn't that much in it. Yeah, and I think the the risk with this, you know, uh, genre, and mm. I, this is why I really loathe action comedies. Yep. Is I think low. They know you loathe them. Yeah, it's, it's I like, really dislike action like, comedies. Really? And the reason is, really? they, they, it's an excuse not to either be not yeah. either to be full of action or work as an action movie or a, or a comedy. I think it's one of my issues with these dramedies. The worst horror comedies. And, can and be like my issue too. with modern comedy more generally, mm. it's so inflected with um, either it's so self-referential or trauma. inflected with trauma that it's not funny. Mm. And this this uh, pilot, say what you want about it it is not funny no and for all that it advertises itself as edgy it's certainly not dark comedy like no. it's going for uplifting comedy like yeah. it's like that bit at the end when he's running along the street and i just yeah like yeah it's it's weird like for a show that has this kind of edgy veneer yeah. the comedy is like just really i mean it's dan in real life yeah but without without <laughs> embracing dan in real life's no. lowbrow no this genre of life-affirming comedy i'm a hard out on yeah so yeah <laughs> I, 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 you don't need to convince me but don't I, you don't you dare bring in sarah <laughs> forgetting sarah marshall yeah look i'm i <laughs> Look, I saw um, I saw forgetting shit Sarah Marshall at a time in my life when I was working on my PhD. I was didn't have a lot of structure, so it, it became a safe space. So I, I will never entirely reject forgetting Sarah Marshall, but just I don't know, Jason Segel. It's just it's no, not. Let's not go there. It's that's not. Just, it's just, not just, my just, shit. It's not. I can't. Just stick look, to shrinking. This I thought was, and look, I, I thought this could actually be really good. Like on paper, it I was sounds looking good. forward to it. Like. I was hoping, you know, I was hoping it would be more of a therapy workplace comedy. Yeah. Because we've seen so many workplace comedies and diff- we've never, I've never actually seen, because web therapy is different because it's online therapy. I've never actually seen a really good comedy set in a therapist office. That could be quite funny as well. That I could mean, be really good. The the potential for being unprofessional would yep. be so great. The, the potential also to have like an equivalent of a, a teacher's lounge, a therapist lounge. Yeah, talk about talk, stuff. Yeah, you talk talk smack about your patients. It makes be. me it makes me think of like Gary Larson, The Far Side. You know, like that great Far Side cartoon where like there's a patient and the therapist just writing just plain nuts. Like <laughs> there must be times when therapists are just like thinking. You think one of my friends is actually a therapist, a family friend. I said to her, "Do you ever get bored in therapy?" And she said, "I often do, but I use my boredom. Mm. So if I'm bored, I'm like, what does that say about me and how I'm processing the clients? Even just stuff like that, mm. the day to day life of therapists. Mm. You know, do you get bored? Do you get you know, annoyed, like all that observational mm. stuff about therapy. That's what this I was hoping is, this yeah. would be. This, this is, is not, not interesting. That. That. This is not. It's that. too busy affirming life, Billy. Yeah, this is Jason Siegel. <laughs> it's got, it's got bigger game to hunt. This is Jason Siegel, um, forgetting his car keys and acting like he just survived World War Three. <laughs> That's his series. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, oh, yeah, it's uh. a shrinking. Okay, forgetting to be funny. What do you reckon was more awful, this or Ted Lasso? <laughs> Ted Lasso has such a huge fan base. Yeah. That, we, we we really risk uh, alienating I, I look, a huge I look, a huge sector of our look, you know, our listenership. It, it makes us sound like you know Scrooges, <laughs> curmudgeons, or, curmudgeons. But look, I tried it yeah. a couple of times and just yeah. your I, bar for comedy is so low too. I I, I will watch. You will it, literally watch any sitcom. I will watch any sitcom. <laughs> I'll watch any sitcom. But Ted Lasso, no, you no, will no, watch no, according no. to Jim. I have watched According to Jim. I've watched all of According to Jim. There's no sitcom I won't watch. Like, but something about Ted Lasso's positivity. Yeah. I don't know. It's like I don't know. Like. Not to be woker than now, but I was like, you can be as positive and optimistic all you like. That's not the same thing as diversity. Step aside. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Like a part yeah. of me is like, there's something about it yeah. that's just like, uh, I don't know. I tell you, it's a bit like a, I think Rutherford. Anyway, I, I, I could go on. I could yeah. go on but yeah. yeah, my bar for sitcoms is very low. Yes. And by the end of this, yes. I just had stony silence. <laughs> Face was like, Carl walked into the room. He's like, are you okay? You look... You look really annoyed. My, my face is just like stony disapproval. It's like, are you angry? I'm like, I'm just finishing shrinking. I'll be, I'll be fine in a moment. I was just, I was so unimpressed. So I, I, distasteful and I was offended. Your reaction was, I was offended. No, by, no, 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 thanks, no, no, though. no, thanks though. Exactly. Um, so look, I'm, I'm a hard out. I, I, have you watched any more of it? I'm no, a hard out. Too. Absolutely no I way. Do not care for this no show. No way. Probably. Never. Um, yep. Yeah, hard out. All right. On to our next series. Mm-hmm. Billy, do you like Alaska? I. I am so obsessed with Alaska. Like, there was a time when, like, I, I would spend every morning on my commute to work just reading about Juneau, Anchorage. I, I would love to go to Alaska. I mean, I like the lower 48, Yeah, but I would yeah. love to go to Alaska. And procedurals. You're in on procedurals? In on procedurals. Hillary Swank. How do you feel about Hillary? Love Hillary Swank. Love you a bit of Swank? Yep. Well, welcome to Alaska Daily. Yep. So Alaska Daily is a new uh, American uh, drama, television series. It's created by Tom McCarthy. Mm. He's probably most famous for his uh, journalistic, sprawling film epic mm. uh, spotlight uh, it's originally screened on ABC and Hilary Swank stars as a famous uh, Beltway journalist mm. who as a result of some shoddy shoddy reporting Beltway was good 
uh, loses her job. Well, we think shoddy reporting. It's I, I feel at the beginning it's implied that she's kind of gone up against a kind of political pundit. Yeah, she's gone the up man. against the man. Well, it's probably also an index of her hubris. Yep. So she she hubristically sided with a with an insider who actually was uh, was was probably less than yeah. reliable. So you, she see, probably... you, see, you see, I thought she had no hubris. I just liked her. I was one hundred percent on board with her from the beginning, and I hope she succeeds in everything <laughs> she does. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. I, I get yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely uh, a quality about her that's that alienates those around her. She takes no, she's no nonsense. She's straight to the point. Uh, she's not afraid to be unlikable. And she's, she's like a great stock journalist character. She's yeah. like straight out of a '90s journalist procedural, journalism that's right. procedural. That's right. That's right. So like a Mary, of, Mary Tyler Moore character, yeah. or '70s. Yeah, so because of this abrasiveness, when she is cancelled, mm-hmm. everyone piles on her. Mm-hmm. She has very few supporters. But one of the few people who is her one of her, her supporters is a former editor mm-hmm. who's now returned to his place of residence in a kind of uh, semi-retirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he works for the Alaskan Daily Newspaper mm-hmm. out of Anchorage. Mm-hmm. He returns to Washington, D.C. and tries to recruit her. And despite her reticence, he, she eventually yields... Mm-hmm. And she flies to Alaska. So this is the premise of the pilot. We got her a series. We got in, a series. Yep, yeah, that's right. Her landing in Anchorage, and uh, him talking about the perils of those coming from the lower forty-eight. And as he says to her, Alaska, in the Alaskan summer. It says Alaska is a funny way of revealing things to you about you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like all the ingredients are there, right? It's like that great procedural element. There's that great kind of fish out of water element. You've got a great character, and. There's Tom also, McCarthy journalism yeah. text as well. Yeah, and Tom and, and the Tom McCarthy element I think comes in in the the subject of what she ends up reporting on. So mm. she starts investigating missing and murdered Indigenous women, the kind mm. of epidemic of that, and that's where the Tom McCarthy kind of docudrama ripped from the headline stuff comes in. It's not huge in the pilot, mm. but you sense it's going to be a part later on. So what he did for the you know Catholic Church stuff and Spotlight, he's going to do for that. I'm really curious, like what did you think of this as a pilot? Very interesting. Mm. I was quite mixed. Mm. I was quite mixed. I, I love the idea, the premise, the coziness, mm. um, the the Alaskan setting. I'm always on board with anything set in these very remote, yep. improbable places. To I was visit. thinking, I want to see more series set in Anchorage. Absolutely, yep. absolutely. These little microcosms, mm. exploring the idea of this kind of murder mystery, mm. journalistic procedural, was very intriguing to me. Mm. Uh, I haven't uh, pressed past the first episode, but. Mm. The spaces they're likely to go to mm. by seaplane mm. or by remote launch mm. um, all sound enticing. This is a series that obviously is shot in Alaska too. Mm. Um, well, I, I presume it is because the the landscapes do appear to be authentic. And also, it looks like uh, it looks like it's shot in Anchorage, like from what you say. Yeah, yeah. Well, like it certainly, I'm... it certainly has that veracity that you would hope mm. for a series like this. Um, I think Hilary Swank is well cast in yeah. this role. She's got a great kind of snappy journalist, yeah. you know, like journalistic swagger. She does. Mm. She does. She's, and I think there's something interesting as well about having someone who's at least at the beginning so unlikable, at least See, at least at least okay. ostensibly, okay. very abrasive. You know, she she she's no nonsense, but she also treats those. Uh, she doesn't like working with other people. Mm. She treats her subordinates pretty poorly. Mm. She's been accused of bullying and we it's believable mm. as well. Mm. Um, so despite your residual <laughs> affection for her, objectively she is actually quite an abrasive character. Mm. But I do like the fact that they've actually they haven't tried to soften her rough mm. edges in, for example, the way that our previous <laughs> uh, series did. Um, <sighs> Sorry, I'm just having a shrinking <laughs> flashback. I just, I, just, I just remembered that shrinking existed. Stay calm, Billy, stay calm. Okay, move on, move on. And I think this this series does actually deal quite sensitively with the the more difficult subject matter here, which is, you know, the epidemic of domestic violence in Alaskan uh, Indigenous it's communities. Yeah, you know, I, the fact that I the, agree. the state has abandoned these communities mm. um, and also the, the problematic nature of a, of a white journalist mm. um, exclusively reporting on this. Mm. So all of those are really interesting dynamics at play. Mm. Um, Yet, mm. I just I wasn't gripped by it. So it's interesting. I, I I kind of I I liked everything everything you're saying. I liked, and I kind of liked it. So I I just found it really comforting, yeah, you know, and interesting in a low key way. So this is obviously low key. Is the it's, it's the definitely low key. Words, it's um <coughs> it's definitely related to poker face, isn't it? In that both are a kind of and to say kaleidoscope. In that they're all evince a kind of nostalgia for a pre-streaming era and for a different kind of pre-quality television. Mm. So this this feels like 
the kind of six episode series that would have been prestige like in 1994. <laughs> That's right. Don't you think? Like it's, That's right. It's kind of... Yeah. It's, it's got, a TV miniseries like straight out of the 90s. Yeah, and it's got that high... Co- like that high concept element or high concept in inverted commas of focusing on something topical like missing and murdered Indigenous women. Like in the mid-90s, that would have made it high concept. Mm. Whereas now it just feels like we, we have series all the time about topical stuff. Mm. I just, I just, I liked it from the opening. So like, even the opening credits, like the opening credits are so modest. It just looks like the cheapest font imaginable. <laughs> Remember a time in television where font wasn't a thing? Yes. Like you just chuck any, any old font on there and it's still, that'll do the job. That's fine. Like, so even just in the beginning, I found it really comforting. Yeah, I, I guess it is all about the vibe. I mean, I, I liked, I liked the way in which Hilary Swank retained that sharpness mm. when she got to Alaska but the sharpness took on a bit of a different inflection. So I thought it was a really, it's a really great scene at the end where a younger journalist expresses hesitation about revealing something that will ruin a politician's life. And that mm. is not necessarily directly related to his campaign, although it does involve misappropriating funds. Actually, it is, but it's, mm. you know, it's not... It, it's just complicated the way it plays out. And Hilary Swank has this really great talk with her about how, like, the duty she owes to the people who read in the newspaper. And it could easily be kind of hammy, but I just, I found it really compelling. I like mm. the way in which her sharpness kind of cut against things like the kind of long-established relationship between the, the newspaper and the police station in Anchorage. And, mm. uh, yeah, look, it's I mean... It's a cosy insular community where these, there's yeah. a complacency that's set in because everyone knows everyone. So her, her brush outside mm. of persona... Is, is bound to ruffle a few feathers. Yeah, and look, in the same way that I guess I liked Poker Face more than Knives Out, I think I could preferred this to Spotlight. Like, I feel like Spotlight, on that big scale, like when, when, it's, when it's kind of aiming for, I guess, a cinematic register, I felt Spotlight really... Like, to me, Spotlight really played as a docudrama or a telly movie, or even just a kind of news story, kind of trying to congeal itself into a film which I, I didn't feel, say, in the same way about She Said or about All the President's Men. I just felt like on the big screen, Tom, Tom McCarthy's style didn't really come together for me, whereas here, obviously, this is more modest in some ways in Spotlight, and it's mm. less epochal in terms of, you know, mm. the, the events are as important, mm. but it's not as directly tied to one particular canonical investigation. Yeah, but but, but the, the events are important, and it's, it's, very, it's a very worthy project. But is it interesting? Does it, does it generate suspense? Does it work as a mystery does it work as a I mean, character I, study does it work like- i mean i think it's interesting like, there are interesting things so i mean yeah I, well it hasn't developed yet in a way that i'm sure of but, but that's that's probably a flaw in this pilot isn't it that there's not there's not that hook that you would hope for yeah i mean i guess i guess to me the hook was her character the hook was the news the news kind of narrative the journalistic narrative and you know i think You've said that it's about domestic violence in Indigenous communities. I mean, I don't think it's just that. Like, it's also about underreported murders and the lack of kind of funds and attention given to murders. So I think it's... My sense was only a matter of time before this becomes a kind of murder investigation and there's some kind of investigation into people, into unsolved crimes. So the way I imagined it happening was her investigating a cold case or investigating crimes. Like, I don't think it's just a domestic violence mm. thing. And I wondered if it might even extend into something like you know, the Highway of Tears in Vancouver, which, yeah. it, you know, it's part of the same pattern. Uh, for those who haven't heard of it, it's like this, a stretch of highway in Vancouver where the only form of mass transit is hitchhiking, really, and where, you know, you know over 100 Indigenous women have gone missing over the last 30 years. And that's, that's a big part of this. It, it may not touch directly on that. I mean, it's Vancouver, not Alaska, but, you know, that shows that there are genuine mysteries around how this all this stuff is unfolded. So I, I sensed a kind of criminal investigation to come mm. rather than just looking at acts of domestic violence. Yeah, yeah. But I, I got a sense already it was framing that, mm. framing those mysteries in terms of, you know, a social problem. So this this felt mm. like a kind of social problem text rather than the sort of investigative, procedural, procedural. investigative procedural that I was, I was hoping for. And I, I thought perhaps... Well, countervailing it, mm. there, there would be an amazing sense of you know coziness, mm. and I'd really, I'd really mm. want to inhabit the space. But mm. I found even its depiction of Alaska was was a little bland. Mm. But I, I quite like the scene in the hotel room where she she doesn't realise it's like ten thirty at night. Yeah, I, I guess you feel lots of like small like moments. I mm. found this quite pleasant, not really pleasant, yeah. but well, look, but lacking in a in the sort of narrative momentum that that I'd I'd want to continue. Mm. Look, I mean, I, look, partly because I've been unwell, I haven't gone back to it since. Like, I haven't been obsessed with it but yeah i mean i guess it's one of the things you feel or you don't right like i i really liked her i really liked the journalistic stuff i sense that the missing and murdered indigenous women stuff is going to is going to either 
kind of bloom into a really interesting week-by-week approach to it, which would be interesting in itself. Like you take this huge epidemic and you attack it from different angles, new approach, or there'll be one case (coughs) in particular they focus on which expands out and becomes a kind of synecdoche for the problem as a whole. I sense both of those things are on the horizon, but I think I've, I've, I've got, in the same way that I've got a bit of a you know penchant, penchant for sitcoms, I also really love any kind of workplace drama. Mm. So I just, I just liked the vibe. I liked the power dynamics at the newspaper. I liked the different journalists. Yeah, I, I get that. Like, I think we both agree about what its strengths are on paper, mm. but just I, 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 kind of, I kind of felt it, I feel like, in a way that you maybe didn't, and I was just mm. attached to it immediately yeah. in a way that you didn't, maybe. Well, like the Alaska Daily Newspaper... The titular Alaska Daily mm. newspaper, this series is is modest to a fault. Yeah, I see. With I thought it was just modest, and look, I think that, and I wonder if it's modest in a way that, yeah, it's interesting. I wondered if it was modest in a kind of as if it was making a bid for a longer. There's only six episodes. It was making a bid for some a bid for something longer, and would then settle into its own. Mm. Um, but look, I, I really liked it. I I thought it was great. I, I thought. The critics seem to agree with you. Like, it's got pretty middling critical reviews. But again, you know, I know that, you know, it's not as bad. Like, I know that it's not fair to compare it to shrinking, but just compared to that kind of <laughs> bloated, high concept, self conscious television, I like this kind of gentle procedural. Yeah, and it's I, gentle. I thought it was a good vehicle for Tom McCarthy, too. So I'm, I'm an in on this. Like, I, I'm really interested to see where it goes. And the fact that I haven't returned to it, I think, doesn't mean that I won't. I've just been waiting for the right kind of moment to get in the groove. So, yeah, I'm an in. Okay, on to our archive choice for this week. Now, this was a little bit dated now because I chose this series, um, recent series. It, actually, I didn't even check. It came out in the last year, right? It came out last year. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Um, a reality series. And maybe it's just worth clarifying too, for our archive corner... Archive Corner is anything that hasn't come out the previous week. Yes. So we use it to look at shows that are really very old now. We've looked at shows in the 60s and 70s. We also look at, use it to look at shows that we might have overlooked in the last couple of weeks or something we did at one point was look, use it to look back at shows that we'd missed during lockdown. Yeah, of course. So this is, this is a very recent show, but we're including it in our Archive Corner because we didn't discuss it at the time. And also, again, it's a bit untimely now because when we last recorded, you just got back from the Middle East and you just got back from Dubai. Of course. So I was interested to kind of see how it compared with your impressions. Um, it's called Dubai Bling. It's part of, I guess, what you'd call a general bling subgenre <laughs> of reality television. And it's about a group of people living and prospering in Dubai. Um, most of them either have careers in media or real estate, apart from one guy, an Australian expatriate, who somehow became a millionaire through radio. Well, I guess he's like the Kyle Sandilands yeah, in Dubai. True. But he seemed to become a millionaire in radio in Australia first. Uh, no, no, in Dubai. It was, it was only when he got there, was yes, it? Okay, yes, I couldn't quite... That's my impression. He's okay. the, uh, the Sandilands of Dubai. The Sandilands of Dubai. Sandilands um, of the Middle East. The Sandilands of the Sands. Um, <laughs> so look, it, and the first episode plays out in terms of how most reality or many reality series play. We're introduced to each of the characters. One's a television presenter, one's a housewife, one's a, a, you know, a woman who married for wealth, it seems, for wealth, very young. Her husband died. She's now basically a princess and takes us through their different lives and different pursuits. And it's funny, you know, I've, I've, I don't have a lot of knowledge of reality television and I've, I've tried a few shows over the years and not been particularly into them, but I've, I've become obsessed with Real Housewives of the Beverly Hills over the last yes. year. And it's funny watching this because compared to this, the wealth of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is so 20th century. Yes. Like, it is so quaint and very embedded in the 20th century. So two of the women on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, their money comes from being child stars in the 70s, another married into the Hilton Empire. So this is... Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is quaint, old-world, 20th century wealth mm. compared to what you see on display here. Yeah. Um, this is... It's next-level bling. This so, is transnational wealth. Well, exactly. And it... it it really captures, doesn't it, that sense of Dubai as being a kind of crossroads of the world. Mm. Like it's, it's not just local people from the UAE. It's all kinds of people who come together in this kind of melting pot. Um, what, what did you think of it? How, how did it tally with your, with your impressions of Dubai? Yeah, well, like Kurt said at the end of you know, Heart of Darkness, mm. the horror, the horror. Oh, it's a little bit imperialist, mate. <laughs> You've ever read, read Chinua Chibi? It's like, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I'd be using Conrad's lens on you. <laughs> I, mean, I remember a comment you made that I thought was really interesting. You said it was like materialistic but pious. And you said it was kind of like a less honest version of Vegas. Yeah. So it was like Vegas yeah. but without kind of being honest about what it actually was. Yes. Yeah. So Dubai was, it was not my favourite place. My least favourite place. You said you my, much preferred Abu Dhabi. On my, on my trip. Yeah. Uh, because it, it has no... Well, whatever indigenous culture it might may well have had is completely concreted over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's now 
a, a playground for oligarchs, yep. uh, often dubious, dubious backgrounds. Mm. Um, and it's like Vegas, but somehow uh, casinos with malls. Mm. So it's a thoroughly, it's a thoroughly um, bland, corporatized. I mean, it's like it's like watching capital enjoy itself. That's how it exactly. felt here. Like it was exactly. like watching money and wealth enjoy yeah. itself. Yeah, post-cultural space. Yep. Um, despite the fact it's it's attempted to or a cannibalistic cultural yeah, space, yeah, artificially insert culture, and I think the the uh, the personalities in inverted commas that we see in this show are pretty symptomatic of the place. And it's a pretty interesting transition, isn't it? Because at the beginning, I wasn't quite sure how to approach them. Because at the beginning, they seem to be presented almost as empathetic or sympathetic, and by the second half, there's more irony around them. They're more ironized, and there's more, you know you know, fighting behind the scenes. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of, it, 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 I guess it's true of a lot of reality television. It, it runs through that really fine line between treating them as kind of abject and treating them as aspirational. Yeah. And I've got to say, like, this pilot compared to, say, Real Housewives, not that's that's the gold standard, I didn't think it was the best structured pilot. Like, no. I found it a bit hard to figure out who was, who. yeah, so I didn't think it was amazing in terms of how it yeah. laid everything out. I think all those, the uh, traditional, like the shows about wealth as well, like just about wealth, they're anchored in a kind of pre-existing charisma that the the characters have. Mm. So, you know, like you said, some of them are former child actors. So you already have some familiarity with them. And even there's a sense of kind of compassion and um, even sympathy you have for these characters, especially if they come from this kind of mm. decayed Hollywood mm. legacy. There's a kind well, of grey like, gardens element. I mean, the so, gothic element. For example, yeah. one of the women in Real Housewives, um, Carl Richards, was the, one of the children in Halloween. Yes. In the original John Carpenter Halloween. So that yes. sense, in the first episode of Real Housewives, you see her putting on makeup to be in the David Gordon Green film. Yes. And so even, like it's even that, the Kardashians. Or something yeah. like that. Sorry, Reunion, yeah. Yeah, even the Kardashians. You know, Bruce Jenner was a personality in the mm. 70s. Uh, you know, the the mother Jenner, whatever, and Chris Jenner. Yep. You know, obviously her husband was part of the, the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah, right. So already they were part of this... This long lineage of celebrity mm. in 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 Hollywood. They're embedded, uh, embedded in that, mm. and also embedded in the kind of you got those tragic arcs of what what it means when your when your celebrity starts to wane. Mm. So there's already this built-in sense of kind of um, someone's flawed and disquietude. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. There's a slight melancholy mm. associated with that. Um, so I think the one character here who approaches that, the one character is the TV presenter who's reaching the end of her career. And it's kind of, she, she feels like her long, her longevity as a TV presenter is coming to an end and she's thinking about how to deal with it. She's the one, and I imagine for people who live in Dubai, they know her from television. Maybe that's She's it. the one I think is the exception. Yes. I liked her the best. Perhaps all these people are celebrities. Well, but I thought her in particular is a TV yeah. commentator. Yeah, the one character I found interesting was the was the young uh, Russian late, or she looked Russian, but she'd married the billionaire and the billionaire had passed away yep. from cancer. The princess, yeah, basically, yeah. I, I thought she was an interesting character. Yep. She had that kind of really hyperbolic femininity of some of those those Hollywood and kind of like damaged, yep. slightly wounded yep. uh, well, femininity. I was going to say, something that's interesting, it's interesting you say that because and I think another way of putting what you're saying is like all these characters, like none of these characters, I think, are celebrities per se or have much of a link to the celebrity world apart from that. They're all influencers at heart mm. or they're socialites. Mm. So you have this kind of almost like generational gap or sensibility gap between influencers and socialites. Mm. And that young woman, the young widow, although she's young, because she married an older man and she mixed in those older circles, she's more of a socialite by mm. sensibility, but like a kind of, you know, a jaded or a damaged socialite. And there's a great scene at the end where it's like a socialite influencer standoff. So you have... We'll call her the princess. Um, the princess comes to a party and a, a very prominent influencer is there. And the two have had some huge feud that the influencers can only be solved with an apology on Instagram. Uh. So you have that kind of interaction. But apart from the socialites, basically everyone is an influencer by sensibility. It's like a crossroads of the worlds for influencers. And as you've said, you know, influencers are often very wealthy or very attractive, but often very devoid of charisma. Yeah. And often like, I often think maybe one of the reasons they become influencers is because they don't have charisma. Because yeah. it's, it's a place you can succeed without a lot of natural charisma. They're like models. They're, they're like models of clothes horses. They're yep. malleable by yep. whatever they're wearing or whatever mm. background they're mm. you know, placed against. That's right. They, they don't have that residual charisma that perhaps some of these socialites do because yeah. they have a life outside of their image. So the people here that I thought were the most interesting were that socialite 
generation. It's it's funny, like she actually had a very interesting backstory as well. Mm. Very intrigued, you know, what mm. was her, how was she raised? You mm. know, how does she reconcile? How does she deal with you know having two young children and mm. enter the dating market? And that was the one interesting thing I think over here we had, you know, the disastrous. Uh, first date at the the at you know the, the aquarium under, underwater restaurant. restaurant the aquarium restaurant which I was certainly priced out of when I went to Dubai it that was, was amazing very expensive restaurant that one I thought it was interesting too because you know something I didn't realise was quite how conservative the UAE can still be towards women I thought it mm. was more liberal so one of Carl's friends, for example, is an American born in Philadelphia. She worked at, you know, NYU Abu Dhabi, mm. an American foreign national working at American University campus. She had to have a mandatory pregnancy test every year. Mm. You know, so real biopolitics. So I thought this this captures interesting the way in which women existed here. So on the one hand, women are kind of venerated, like as you know, princesses and as you know. But there's, there's also the marriages have a much more transactional element. Mm. And one of the I've watched a few more episodes, and one of the subplots I quite like is there's a couple where the man wants a woman to have another child, and she says she'll only do it if they move to a bigger house. Mm. And then in front of everyone later on, she announces it's going to be in a sur- through a surrogate anyway. And she's kind of she's kind of demonised a bit on the show and in the fan community that from what I read online. But I've I find characters like her interesting because she kind of accepts at face value that the marriage is transactional Mm. and negotiates. And I thought the real estate stuff was interesting too. Like it's obviously culturally permissible for women to be big business real estate moguls because it's like it's just close enough to the domestic sphere. Yeah, so like So like you have women who aren't exactly housewives, but they have that proprietorial connection to domestic space. Mm. So it was interesting to see like a that kind of reality bling style coming up against a culture where the role of women is obviously in some ways more venerated than in our culture, but in other ways much more restrictive. And yeah, that, that, yeah. That's yeah. kind of... It's an un, it's unspoken thing in the series, but it's something they're all kind of negotiating, yeah. it feels like. Yeah, and a lot of these, a lot of these um, celebrities are uh, transplants from other part, more conservative parts of the Middle East as well. Interesting. I sense, often have I wonder that. this unusual upbringing where they've been raised in you know, the West, mm. but they come from the East, and Dubai is this transitory space between, mm. between the two, this kind of... So they enjoy this kind of tra- they enjoy this this uh, provisional, like you say, provisional freedom, mm. um, you know, economic, sexual, cultural, and, and the, for that reason, the accents are quite hard to place, aren't they? they? Are. Like they're, they're real, like cosmopolitan accents. Mm. I mean, in that kind of traditional sense, like it feels like the series is quite orientalist. Mm. Like it's this real sense of Dubai as like this exotic threshold between the West and the East, mm. between like you know the mm. Orient and Europe. Yeah. Well, yeah, the Dubai, I think, probably marks what we could see as these third spaces that yes. are neither west nor east. Exactly, yeah. Which, you know, you might describe Hong Kong perhaps so, as you're right. so Singapore. So, and obviously, it's, it's a bit different, isn't it, historically? You're right, it is a third space, but there's a, that orientalist, older orientalist Tinge, aspect, sure. I think, is, is a big part of how the series markets for itself. Sure. For sure. Look, I, I thought I found this, you know, slightly interesting from an anthropological mm. perspective but i found everyone so thoroughly dislikable that i wanted to uh <laughs> carpet bomb dubai and look i've 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 watched a bit more of it it's interesting isn't it like I, I i liked it it a lot of the characters in in real housewives are also unlikable but it's funny like i've been thinking about what i like about real housewives and reality television it reminded me of something that like uh, you know stephen chaviro critic we both like said he said that the two genres that are most realistic in terms of life are horror and melodrama, and we mm. need most. And there's something about the intensity of the intensity of reality television and the intensity of the relationships and how they change and shift that's just very true, I think, to the mercurial way in which we all react, react to each other all the time. I guess the difference in Real Housewives is that you see real vulnerabilities mm. and you see real passion and agony, and it, it might resolve one minute, it might erupt another minute, but there's a sense that there is that... In, Incredible depth of emotion and feeling, which I, I I didn't feel you quite got to here. Like this to me was a bit like an, an airbrushed advertisement. Yeah. I mean, I know you're a big Jersey Shore fan too. Like Jersey Shore, I imagine has that intensity to it. That I was that a fan of the first two seasons. First two seasons, <laughs> but that kind of intense, you know, in, just in insecurity and passion yeah. and yeah, rage authenticity. and authenticity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I like this, but I feel like I wanted to go deeper too, and I wanted it to be more candid about the characters mm. in some way mm. and be a little bit less invested in the upwardly mobile Dubai lifestyle. Mm. This so, series felt like an extension of their Instagram personas. So well, I was gonna, it wasn't, wasn't really problematizing them at all. And I was going to say, the whole series feels a bit like being trapped in Instagram. Like it, it almost feels like, you know, you, 
you know, I, I tend to not follow these kind of people on Instagram as much, but you know that kind of influencer setting, it's, it's, it's very much about a certain kind of airy, breezy, quasi-Mediterranean backdrop. Like there's an, inst- there's an Instagram mise-en-scene yeah. that's kind of, that's common from person to person. It feels like Dubai is almost like an incarnation of that. Yeah. Like it's like being inside Instagram. So whereas a lot of reality television, can, you, it feels very immediate and visceral and melodramatic and even approaches horror, mm. I, I thought this was a bit airless yeah. at times. So like I thought it was interesting but I'm not a really hard in. I just, I yeah, interesting just to hear how it correlates with your Dubai experience too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. What's what have you got on the menu for next week's archive corner? Very recent show. Oh, great. Uh, show that we. So something before the last week. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. definitely, definitely before the Good. last week. Yeah. Uh, but one of the shows that I think we might have dismissed as being uh, YA Pablum at the time. Oh, okay. But um, as you know became one of Netflix's biggest hits of yep. last year. Yep. And it's been independently recommended to me by yep. several people. Uh, directed by Tim Burton. Yeah, right. Wednesday. Wednesday. So it's funny. I mean, I, I feel like we're maybe being a bit harsh on ourselves there. I don't think we necessarily dismissed it. It was just, from what I remember, it was, it came out just like a week before you went overseas mm. or a week or two. And we were thinking, should we do or do another episode? I, I think it was also just as much a kind of... Con- convenient thing like, mm. like what do we do yeah it's, yeah. A, it's an omission I, I don't i don't blame us for, yeah. for dismissing yeah. it as well because netflix has produced so many awful awful yeah. we, adaptations. We, we had a period <laughs> we went through what was that terrible one with like the ship that flew through time i mean some some of these just yeah oh. we saw some absolute absolute dreck so yeah. Yeah. But apparently uh, by you know according to several people this is actually an interesting combination of uh ya murder mystery comedy and so and forth. It's really interesting because, you know, on that note, one, remember we had, we had an episode slated before you went away, but we just didn't get to it because it was the last week before you went and you were busy. Um, Willow was one we never got back That's to right. as well. And did you ever watch that? I that, did. That was like, I thought, one of the best fantasy pilots I'd seen for ages. Maybe that's a good future archive mm. corner as well. I wondered if you were going to do Columbo this week. Oh, I thought okay. you might Would be going to Columbo direction. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll suggest that in the future. Yeah, great. Sounds good. So we'll do Wednesday, next Wednesday. <sighs> mm. Love it. Great. Okay. Symmetry. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.